Welcome back, my little hormones. Our question this week is, like me, small but tight. Was ancient Egypt gay? Now, if you work in the booming business that is queer history long enough, you're bound to find out sooner or later, there isn't that much LGBTQ plus fuckery in ancient Egypt, at least not as much as the other ancient civilizations. Why is that? Did the Egyptians just not talk about sexuality and gender as much as their neighbors? Were they particularly lax about both or overly prescriptive? Or, as usual, assuming that everyone everywhere is probably a bit gay, a bit bi, a bit trans, do we just need to know where and how to look? You've probably heard of our hero today. I actually remember writing a book report about her in like fourth grade, right around the time I discovered my abiding homosexual fascination with powerful women and penises. I can still see myself walking into class that day, passing Miss Silver my freshly printed packet with a neat little staple job up top, looking into her eyes as I whispered, Slay. Hatshepsut, who was born around 1507 BC, was one of ancient Egypt's more successful pharaohs, overseeing 20 years of booming international trade, magnificent architectural works, and diplomatic peace in powerful New Kingdom Egypt. She was also, by many of her own very public accounts, eagerly gender fluid. Her posturing as a male divinity allowed her to successfully co-opt the position of Pharaoh and consolidate power, as we can see in this direct quote from one of her temples. I myself am a god. That which happens is meant. Nothing I say is erroneous. Doesn't that just make your brain boner tingle? I think I'll actually get nothing I say is erroneous tattooed on my neck. No other female pharaoh in Egypt, and there were several others before old Hattie, was as successful in constructing a lasting image of herself as a simultaneously male-female king. Still, many scholars today attempt to downplay the significance of her gender fluidity. But of course, that stops today. So grab those speedos, and let's penetrate the deep, human-temperature waters of history together. Even in her own time, Hatshepsut's unconventional rule was clearly a threat. She later became the victim of a historical revisionist campaign led by one of her successors. This patriarchal fuckboy attempted to downplay Hatshepsut's successes, claiming them as his own, and erasing her associations with power. But before all that, Hatshepsut deftly navigated the politics of her day to rise to the top of the heap. She was born the daughter of a powerful pharaoh, Tutmos I, and married her half-brother, Tutmos II, who was the offspring of one of her father's secondary wives. Gross. The name Hatshepsut literally means foremost of noble ladies, because this bitch came with a pedigree. 
she must have been well-educated for the time, and she certainly got an early education in politics when she became a very young queen consort because her father died at a fairly young age. She quickly fulfilled her wifely duties, giving birth to a royal incestuous daughter named Neferure before she claimed she could no longer have children. Hatshepsut also held great cult religious titles like God's Wife of Amun when she ruled alongside Tutmos II, who probably reigned for about 15 years before he croaked. When her husband brother died, Hatshepsut the Mormon took control of Egypt as regent. Her stepson, Tutmos III, was only a toddler, and our hero quickly consolidated power to ensure the lasting influence of her family's dynasty. That meant ruling as regent, and she was a fairly conventional one at first. Then something unusual happened. After she proved herself a capable regent through years of successful trade and some early military campaigns, My pronouns are Glock and 57! <laughs> Hatshepsut fully proclaimed herself as pharaoh, not queen, not regent. Gender fluid, female king, but also somehow divine male, pharaoh. We know about this process from the visual record. Hatshepsut goes from being portrayed as a regular old queen to an experimental combination of female body and pharaoh clothes. And then at some point, the formal portraits start to show Hatshepsut with a male body and all the traditional regalia of the pharaoh. False beard, crown, and kilt-like skirt. Why this change? It may have been a response to some crisis of succession, or it may simply have been Hatshepsut opportunistically capitalizing on her earlier success. She was clearly ambitious, and she understood the court that she was operating within. Her stepson was also still young and lacked an heir, so it was an opportunity for Hatshepsut to seize control as supreme ruler. But even then, it was abnormal for a woman to lay claim to such power, and the experimentation in the visual record shows that this wasn't a foregone conclusion that Hatshepsut could somehow become the male pharaoh. Whatever the case, her track record, combined with her exalted lineage and a team of propaganda machines, made it possible for Hatshepsut to present officially as a male in order to validate her reign as pharaoh. She adopted a male iconography with fake beards and breastless statues, but also maintained many female-gendered characteristics in the written record, such as her royal names. She had inscriptions commissioned, where she left no doubt that she was a woman with a king's male divinity. She was the physical divine offspring of the god Amun, by virtue of being the offspring of the pharaoh, her earthly father, but at the same time, she was the physical embodiment of the unavoidably male divinity Horus. One of those inscriptions reads, I was in one body with him, the god Amun. Every god says to himself, one who will achieve eternal continuity has come, whom Amun has caused to appear as king of eternity on Horus's throne. I am come as Horus, the sole Urias, spitting fire at my enemies fierce. That whole inscription asks us to understand that Horus, who is unquestionably a male divinity, has incarnated himself through the body of Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut is intentionally blurring the lines between her temporal existence, which is undeniably female, and her divine existence as a male god. At the same time, Hatshepsut had to rule with and through men for much of her reign. Her stepson, Tutmos III, eventually ran the army for her, and very successfully. Hatshepsut was the master puppeteer, though. The Hatshepsutir, if you will. 
and managed to have a lasting impact on Egypt. Through her early military campaigns, she clarified she was not to be fucked with. That allowed her to reestablish trade routes that brought valuable new products like frankincense and myrrh into Egypt, which, side note, created a new kind of black eyeliner from the charred resin of frankincense, so all the lads and ladies at court could beat they face. Cinch that waist. Turn up the base. With black eyeshadow and liner in the service of their many lukes. Now that is what we call a queen. All the wealth from this trade enabled Hatshepsut to also embark on vast building projects. Her mortuary temple was impressively grand even back in the day, and Hatshepsut understood that architecture and statuary were powerful media for communicating authority. Toward the end of her life, her stepson and half-nephew Tutmos III started to take over. He would rule independently for 33 years, but at the end of it, decided to embark on this anti-Hatshepsut campaign, a hate-Shepsut platform, if you will. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all week. Tutmos III was probably trying to guarantee the legitimacy of his succession to ensure the line went from Hatshepsut's father, Tutmos I, to, and his grandfather, to his son, Tutmos II, his father, and then his son, Tutmos III, himself, with no pesky female interruption from the oh-so-hateful Hattie. But as a result, Hatshepsut was lost to history until 1822, when Egyptian hieroglyphs were finally decoded and this gender-manipulated hashtag girl-boy boss return to us. Note to self, drag name, Rosetta Stone. Yeah, that's good. While Hatshepsut referred to her kingly heart and kingly mind in written inscriptions, she also blurred gender lines unconventionally in art creating various propaganda campaigns that simultaneously promoted her male pharaonic divinity, which was necessary to fulfill the office, as well as her biological femininity. It's a strange mixture, one that confused scholars for a long time, and, and one that they still attempt to downplay on the grounds that Hatshepsut was not the only woman to reign as pharaoh, um, and also on the grounds that this was all just political posturing. So what's really going on? Obviously, no one questions that Hatshepsut was a woman who performed that gender for much of her life. But there's also no question that she formally took on a role and managed to convince an entire nation of living people who were in a patriarchal society that she was able to perform the socially male-gendered role of pharaoh. That required some clever maneuvering. Even in a society like ancient Egypt, where women had many legal and reproductive rights, it's significant that Hatshepsut never married again, refused to have children, and insisted that although she was undeniably female, she was endowed with the right lineage to represent the divine male god's incarnation on earth. And people by and large went along with it. And just as a side note, women in ancient Egypt could do a lot. They had a lot of independence. They could decide their own professions. They could marry whomever they pleased, contract prenups, get divorces, own real estate, enter the clergy, and even gain access to birth control and abortions. Wow. Ancient Egypt is the liberal media elite trying to destroy this country. But even with all that freedom, they lived in a very clear gender binary. Crossing its lines was, as in all civilizations, possible, but not necessarily encouraged and certainly not expected. Hatshepsut was making a gamble when she cast herself in this role, and she did it. She took it to an extent that previous female pharaohs had not. 
So as always, we can't be sure what Hatshepsut herself felt personally in terms of her gender identity. It seems to me we probably have a similar case to Joan of Arc or Queen Elizabeth I of England, both of whom played up their sacrosanct status as unmarried, unmothering women in order to cross gender boundaries. By desexualizing themselves to some extent, by defeminizing themselves, these women stepped into the spiritual realm of gender fluidity. Because the office of pharaoh was above all a religious one, the pharaoh was not just a military and administrative ruler. He was an incarnation of the divine in Egypt, the proof that the gods were present and favorable to the empire. Hatshepsut played with gender very seriously so that her physical body and spiritual identity could accommodate the Egyptian expectation that any pharaoh had to be necessarily a divine dude. I'm the dude. We know from other civilizations, from ancient Mesopotamia to Imperial Rome, from indigenous America to classical India, that gender fluid people have frequently played a role as spiritual incarnations, guides, or representatives in their societies. At Rome, for example, the Galli, G-A-L-L-I, were a priesthood of castrated men who probably occupied some sort of third gender in the imperial period. They wore feminine clothing and honored those among them who had not been through male puberty. In India, the Hydra, who still exist today under significant persecution, were originally a third gender community that helped celebrate Hindu marriages and births, very significant religious celebrations. They were believed to have special powers at these occasions to bless or curse, and they were revered for it, until the British came, of course, and ruined everything as usual. So we probably can't say that Hatshepsut herself was intentionally non-binary or transgender in the modern sense of the term, but she certainly understood that gender was a spiritual and malleable product of her society, and she used that brilliant, extremely modern insight to rule almost 100% peacefully for 20 years. You go, Hatshepsut. Thanks for joining me this week for a little human temperature dip into the endlessly wonderful history of gender. Next week, we'll be talking about Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, the bisexual queens of the blues. This is one of my favorite stories ever, so do not miss it. Meanwhile, you can follow us on Instagram at historical.homos or at historicalhomos.com. And as always, if you like what you hear, please give us a like, give us a share, give us a subscribe. We are so poor, and attention is this world's only currency. Love you.